This morning in the second session, we were talking about Jerusalem's views about evil and suffering. Jerusalem claims that God is good. The world that God has made is good, but there is evil in it. And the question is, where does it come from? And in Jerusalem, the answer is that evil originates in God's creatures who turn away from what is good and in the case of human beings, inevitably bequeath all sorts of consequences of that to further generations and so on. And the result of this in the end is that evil does produce in the world fairly widespread and rather devastating suffering. Um, and all of that is rightly attributed uh, to moral evil, for sure. Um, but I was suggesting that neither Scripture nor reason nor the experience really ought to lead us to the view that all of what we call suffering is of that character. And indeed, one thing I didn't point out on the way through this morning, which I realized afterwards I ought to have done, we were talking about the, uh, the birth pangs question, you know, the, in Genesis 3. Uh, you may have noticed there that what is said to the woman is that her suffering will increase, not that it will begin, which is interesting because it rather does fit with the kind of proposal I was presenting to you uh, earlier on. What I want to talk about mainly in this final session of, of today is what are we supposed to do about all of that? What is our response to be to uh, evil, uh, to the suffering arising from evil, and for that matter, what is our response to be to the suffering that may not actually arise from evil uh, at all? Um, so it's the issue of response, the nature of the response, the activity or passivity involved in that response. Those are the issues I want to get at. But I want to begin by taking further the question of the curses in Genesis. So I alluded to this earlier on in answer to a question. Uh, this is another big question that we have to get clarity on. Overall, what I'm suggesting to you today actually is that your view of how the question of evil and suffering and the fallenness of things relates to the question of creation and the goodness of things, your overall view of that will massively shape every other aspect of what you think. The big picture, the frame, that provides you with the context in which your reading of all the particular text takes place, right? So obviously, how you frame the big picture is pretty important to everything else. And one of the big framing questions that we haven't quite addressed head on is this idea of the fallenness of things and what we're supposed to make of that. Uh, so I would frame this question in the following way. Are the events of Genesis 3 viewed in Scripture as predicting the way that things must now inevitably develop because evil has entered our experience, right? So is this prescriptive? 
Is it laying down the rules of engagement from this point onwards? Are human beings now fated or destined to live with the consequences of the fall? Are these consequences unalterable now, no matter what we do? Is the only thing we can change our attitude? All right, so this is really a question about the character of those curses in Genesis 3 and how that is understood in the rest of Scripture. And that's the question I really want to answer. Uh, Of course, that question is answered in all sorts of ways in Christian tradition. But in order even to sift which of those are good answers or bad answers, we have to get clarity, first of all, on what Scripture itself uh, seems to suggest. Now, this is a really important question, and it has inevitably shaped the course of Christian history, how people have answered this question. So, there is a view, it's the view that I more or less picked up when I was a teenager at university, uh, and this, this view, very much a Calvinist view in, in my context, although I think it's wider than simply the Calvinist tradition, on this view, the story goes like this. The world has been indelibly marked by the sinfulness and stupidity of our first ancestors, We need to accept what we've inherited from them. To do otherwise would be rebelling against God because God has ordained that the world should be this way now. In these curses, on this view, God has recreated the world, actually, to make it a suitable place for fallen people to live in, right? So it's ordained. And while we should not try to add to the evil and suffering as we await our escape from it, neither should we try to change it much. It would be impious to do so. I think that would be a fair description of quite a significant part of our Christian tradition, and some of you may recognize this, although others of you will be politely internally without moving your head, shaking it nonetheless, and thinking, really, I've never come across that, but I can assure you that this is a fairly common kind of view. And it explains a number of things about the history of the Christian church. For example, it explains why so many of my countrymen, so many Scots, back in 1847, opposed this man, James Simpson, when he began to advocate for the use of anesthetics in childbirth. So he was a medical man. He had discovered that if you use chloroform astutely, you could relieve some of the pain that women were experiencing in childbirth. And this idea outraged a significant section of the Scottish population. And they said, you can't do that. That is to avoid a God-ordained curse. It's impious. You can't do it. The same kind of approach to Genesis 3 
also lies behind a long-commended approach to male-female relations in Western society. On this view, the ruling of men over women that's talked about in Genesis 3 is also God-ordained. It is not a description of how male-female relations often work in the fallen world. It's not merely a description of that reality. It is a prescription as to how things ought, in fact, to work. Now, you see the same assumption lies behind both of those approaches, right, to life. In both examples, this story goes, we live in a world in which a mistake was once made And all of us must now pay the ongoing series of penalties. And they're just always with us. They're unchangeable. You ought not to try to change them. To borrow the words of Abraham Derbyfield to his sister Tess, in Thomas Hardy's Tess of the Derbyfields, we live in a blighted world rather than a splendid one. In that story, in Abraham's view, It's not splendid and somewhat blighted. It's blighted and not at all splendid, right? The fall has just ruined everything, and this is the world that we are now fated, destined to live in, okay? So that's that's the view um, that I want to actually step back from and to raise questions about in line with what I was saying earlier today. I want to suggest that this is not, in fact, what Jerusalem Scripture teaches. I'm a Bible kind of guy, you know, and uh, what I'm trying to get at here is what Scripture really has to say, and I'm absolutely accountable to to, to anyone who can demonstrate otherwise, as, as I should be, But in this case, as in others earlier today, I actually think that aspects of our Christian tradition have gone astray. They've not managed to really capture the the right balance on some of these questions. Uh, So what I want to argue, in fact, is that Scripture does not view the events of Genesis 3 as having totally and adversely affected the character of creation as good. So that's restating something I said before, right? That God's creation in biblical thinking remains good. It is a place blessed by God. It remains entirely wonderful in nature. We ourselves legitimately celebrate it and praise God in the midst of it. And I cited a couple of Psalms, you remember, 104 and 147, among others, that demonstrate that lesser people in the story are still responding to creation in the same way as it is first described in Genesis 1. The same kinds of categories are being celebrated. Um, So this is part of my argument that whereas evil does interfere with the goodness of the world, it doesn't Uh, obliterate it, it doesn't remove it, Uh, and as a subset of that argument, I want to argue that the curses in Genesis 3 are not 
thought of as fates or destinies, as unavoidable realities that we must and should live in. So, for example, Genesis 3 speaks of a breakdown in the human relationship with God, right? And uh, that is regarded as something with ongoing consequences. And yet, in Genesis 4, Abel has a good relationship with God. Enoch and Noah are said to have walked with God, a walk that reminds us of the walking of God in the garden, of course, in the early chapters of Genesis. Cain, who doesn't end well, is clearly presented, though, in the story of Genesis 4 as having a choice. He might well submit to sin, but he ought not to do so, yes? He he ought not to give in and allow sin to master him. There's nothing inevitable about his submission, basically. That's very clear in the story. Even after he submits to sin, and even after he murders his brother Abel, he's still described as living in God's presence and as talking with God. There's still a relationship, right? So, the expulsion of human beings from the garden does not mean in this story that people cannot walk with God. It's not the only option available. Then again, think about the curse on the woman. We mentioned this earlier on. The curse on the woman is increased pain associated with the bringing of children into the world. That's what I think it's about, broadly. If you read the rest of the Old Testament, though, the predominant note in the remainder of the Old Testament, where mothers and children are described, is not pain, but joy. Right? So the actual description of mothers and children, the languages of joy and pain doesn't show up. So think of Psalm 113, he, God, settles the barren woman in her home as a happy mother of children. It's a very optimistic, joyful little verse, right? And there's nothing about pain in there. Think about the curse on the man in Genesis 3. You remember he is to struggle with the ground until he dies, and then he will go back to join the ground from which he came. And it's a very gloomy prognostication, right? It's not a, it's not a great view of life, really. The question is, is it regarded as inevitable that that should be the case in the rest of Scripture? Well, I, I don't see that reality. Think of Psalm 128. That psalm promises the person who lives a reverent life before God that his life will be blessed in the following way. You will eat the fruit of your labor. Blessings and prosperity will be yours Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your sons will be like olive shoots around your table. That's a picture of family bliss, is it not? And notice that success in agriculture, economic success, is the foundation of that. So whatever the cursing about the man struggling with the ground until he die, whatever that means, it's not a global destiny or fate, yes, in the rest of Scripture. It's not regarded that way. 
In fact, already in Genesis chapter 9, you will come across Noah as a man of the soil, a farmer. He is the first in the Bible to plant a vineyard, and it goes jolly well. In fact, you may remember, it goes so well that later on in the story, he doesn't handle himself very well in relation to his success with the vineyard. You may remember, he gets rather drunk and something very bad happens. But the point is, he's a successful farmer who fulfills his father's hope in Genesis 5 with respect to the pain of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. The father hopes that Noah will overcome that impediment, and in the story, he does. He's a successful farmer. And then think about the aspect of Genesis 3, the curse, this power struggle between the man and the woman. You remember in Genesis 3, you have this very accurate existential picture of how relationships often are in the world, where the man wants to dominate the woman, and the woman has a desire for her husband, which is, I believe, a desire for power. It's not sexual desire. It's a It's a power struggle that's being uh, communicated there. Well, is that kind of relationship in marriage, is that viewed as inevitable in the biblical story? So you read on in the story, and you see relationships that seem to be doing much, much better than that, rather bleak picture, where there's genuine affection and love in the midst of, admittedly, a lot of dysfunction, And then think of the Song of Songs as the great counterpoint to this curse. Um, If you have read the Song of Songs, you will know that is full of garden imagery. The action happens in the midst of a flourishing, fertile creation, and the lovers in the Song of Songs identify with this wider creation. They revel in it as they affirm each other with images drawn from it. There's no darkness. There's no power struggle in the Song of Songs. It's all pretty blissful stuff. It's joyous. There's mutual affirmation. There's a glorying in what is good. And in the Song of Songs, the man and the woman restore in their love what has been fractured in Genesis 3. Now, these are only a few examples, and I could certainly multiply them if we had time. And and the bigger point I want to make here is a fairly well-established principle of good biblical interpretation that we must always try to read the individual passage in the context of the whole thing. So, if we are reading Genesis 3 in the context of the whole of Scripture, and in the first instance in the context of the Old Testament, and we ask ourselves the question, what does the rest of Scripture encourage us to believe about the meaning of Genesis 3? We are bound to come to the answer, it does not regard those curses as fates or destinies that inevitably we must indwell. That is not the view of Scripture. Our biblical authors absolutely know about darkness and threats to all of this, uh, all that's good. They know about that. They know that each of us is born into the midst of all of this. And before we're even conscious of making decisions, we are shaped by our parents and society. And so 
Uh, in that sense, we are already embroiled in dysfunction and chaos uh, before we're even making conscious decisions. There's a very powerful sense in the Bible about the baggage that we pass down generation through generation in that respect. That's overtly addressed. <clears throat> very realistic sense of the impact of evil in the present, structurally, not just individually, the way in which large structures can impinge upon us and oppress us. Uh, a very clear idea that none of us is a passive recipient of this, but we are all actively engaging to some extent in evil, and that this in many ways does mark our whole life. So all of that is true, and yet what I want to suggest to you is that biblical faith does not regard it as inevitable that we must go on living in these ways. And in fact, the opposite is the case. The people of God are called not to live in those ways, but to live in a different way in God's kingdom. The people of God, all human beings actually, are summoned to turn back to the Creator to reestablish a right relationship with the Creator, to get right with our fellow human beings, to engage once again in caring for creation. There is no fatalism in the biblical perspective. There's a pronounced opposition to fatalism. And that's a necessary starting point because you will understand that the question, how should I respond to evil and suffering, depends a lot on your decisions about what I've just been saying. You see what I mean? I mean, if it's impious to try and change the world, well, don't do it. Yes, obviously. Um, you remember we talked about the Hindu caste system and why it hasn't changed for 2,000 years. It's fundamentally because it's impious to change it, right? Perfectly logical that that would be the case. But if, on the other hand, you think that Genesis 3 is charting a path that it's all too possible to walk upon, and many people do, and yet not inevitable, and you ought to repent and not do it, if that's the biblical message, then that implies a different series of responses to evil and suffering, yes? So we're at one of these junctures in the road with regard to the big picture. And I profoundly believe that much of what I was told about this when I was younger is simply not biblical. It's simply not the Jerusalem view. So I'm going to put that out there as the foundation connected to what I was saying this morning. And I want to now get in much more step by step to the what am I supposed to do then in this world that's good but marked by evil and suffering? What's the Jerusalem idea of the good life, the righteous life in response to all of this. So we begin then, I want to begin by saying that the path that Jerusalem charts for us is first of all the path of resistance. What are we to do about evil and suffering? I am to resist evil cutting off at its root the tree of suffering that grows from it. I think that's the first, the foremost biblical answer to the question. 
I am not to capitulate to evil. I am not to accept the inevitability of it. I'm not to despair. I am to steadfastly pursue what is right. That's a fundamental biblical injunction. Deuteronomy 30, verse 15. See, I set you before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. Now choose life. You see, two ways. One of them is really bad and does lead to death and destruction, but there is this other way. Now, for goodness sake, people, be smart and choose life, says Deuteronomy 30, right? The prophet Micah, it's not, basically, I can summarize this text by saying it's not rocket science. This is what Micah is saying. He has shown you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. It's very simple. It's not complicated. That's the biblical response to the world as we find it. Pursuit of the right, beginning with right thinking about God because the whole thing went wrong because of wrong thinking about God, right? Being suspicious of God, not accepting that God is good, listening to the serpent. So right thinking about God that leads on to right thinking about our fellow creatures, both human and not, and from that flowing right actions. And biblically, to the extent that we follow this right path and refuse to accept the world as we find it, Scripture says it is still possible to flourish in this world, and it gives us wonderful pictures of what that flourishing looks like. Uh, the book of Deuteronomy, you ever read the book of Deuteronomy? with its marvelous pictures of what is possible for the Israelites if they live righteously in the land. And then, the terrible consequences of not doing it. But the point is, both options are available. Yeah? Nothing has been done in the world that makes one of those options impossible now. That's my main point. Now, of course... Our ability actually to do that is deeply affected by what's going on around them, and we do need to be clear-headed about that. Uh, I mean, you could say that the modern secularist view is a kind of heretical version of this Christian view, and it says, without God, we can fix everything by Tuesday with technology and hard work, <laughs> right? Which is a, it's a kind of Christian idea, but it's just been taken like 10 meters off the wrong direction, right? But it is a kind of fundamentally Christian kind of view of the world, uh, but it has this overconfident aspect to it. Uh, our ability to do stuff and a severe underestimation probably of the intransigence of evil in the world, that kind of over-optimistic idea. And there are theologies that are equally optimistic in a wrong way, I think. You may have heard the saying, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing, which is cute, but untrue, it seems to me. Um, it's a saying attributed often to Edmund Burke in the 18th century, but nobody really knows where it came from. The main point about it is I don't think it's entirely true. It seems to me that history is full of examples where evil has triumphed even though good people have done a heck of a lot. Uh, it underestimates evil, essentially. It underestimates our actual capacity to deliver 
change in the world, even though we may be very committed to it. So certainly the Bible recognizes that larger reality. Uh, Good people must certainly not do nothing, that's for sure. It's not a passive fatalistic view. But of course, there is a very strong idea that even the most righteous person may well be surrounded by a culture that's so perverse that not much can be achieved. And the great biblical picture of that early on is Noah. Noah's a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. He walked with God, but it didn't matter very much in terms of the global picture. Yes, it mattered for him and his family, and ultimately it mattered for creation. But in the immediate circumstances, it, it, didn't, it didn't seem to be going very well, right? Um, so, uh, Noah lives well. But was it futile that Noah lived the way he did? No, not ultimately, actually. It only appeared that it was, but ultimately it wasn't because, why is this? Well, because God is God. The story is moving on. It comes to a happy ending. And so, in the end, living in this way is utterly rational and coherent. But in the meantime, it may appear not to be. So framing this in the whole story is, is important. Psalm 106, verse 3, Blessed are they who maintain justice and who constantly do what right, what is right. But you have all those lament psalms saying, Yes, O God, but, but the world is a crappy place. How long, how long is it going to be, actually, before we make progress? So to get the balance right here, Biblical faith urges resistance to evil, but it does so with a clear-headed realism, recognizing that the state of the world is greater than my capacity to change it, right? So we have to reckon both with activism, but also realism. Secondly, the biblical response to evil and suffering involves patient endurance, Precisely because of all the issues I've just been talking about. If the right path immediately and obviously led us to the kingdom of God by Tuesday, there would be no need for biblical authors to keep on urging us to walk on it. Yes? There's a reason why they exhort us so much to this. Uh, The triumph of good over evil is not easily achieved, and in the long run it will happen, but not necessarily even locally right now. Um, that, an example, by the way, of this overconfident modernity that I ought to have mentioned a moment ago, it's one of my favorite ones. You may know the author Kurt Vonnegut, uh, who wrote a novel called The Sirens of Titan, and he says this, there is no reason why good cannot triumph as often as evil. The triumph of anything is a matter of organization, If there are such things as angels, I hope they are organized along the lines of the mafia, end quote. Well, that's that's hopelessly naive, it it seems to me. Good organization is better than bad organization, for sure. But the idea that you can rescue the world through good organization is about as credible as the idea you can recognize it through good education, you can redeem it through good education. Not that education's a bad thing either. So in biblical faith, right living, being on the right path, being in the right relationship with God and with other people does not lead immediately necessarily to good ends to such an extent 
that people of faith can lose heart and despair. It's a wonderful thing that in our Bible we have text to help us with that. Have you noticed that? The realism of the Lament Psalms. Psalm 73, as for me, my foot had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Right? The problem is the prosperity of the wicked calls in question everything else we've been saying. It doesn't fit. It's not right. It's something wrong with that. It's a problem, and it can lead people to doubt the truthfulness of the story. And Scripture recognizes that and gives you stories and psalms describing that that we can inhabit as a way of thinking it through and uh, retrieving our confidence. Otherwise, it's all too easy to think, you know, what I do doesn't matter. The world's too big. Why should I get out of bed and actually do it? Confucius, interestingly, has something to say about this. He spoke about the human tendency to view humble actions only as small acts of goodness that are of no benefit and not to do them because they're small. But actually, in biblical faith, there's every reason to do small, futile actions. Not because in the present context they are anything other than futile, apparently, but because the whole story we're bound up in is going somewhere in which every fragment is gathered up into something that means something, right? So the Christian hope is the engine for an active response to the world. It's not an excuse for a passive one. Um, We're creatures of extremes, I think. It's all too often to swing from wild-eyed optimism into despair. This is my favorite cartoon on this point. Take a moment to read Mark and inwardly digest this important theological statement. The caption is Bipolar Bear. Can you see that? Is it too small? Is it good? On second thought, I'll just stay in bed. Well, it's a temptation. We all know about it. And that's why so many of the Psalms urge us, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Wait for the Lord and keep His way. I wait for the Lord, you will answer. There's a whole bunch of texts touching on this. So, the way of patient endurance. Uh, Thirdly, the biblical response to evil and suffering is the path of prayer. Uh, Very important because, of course, in the biblical view of the world, we are not designed or intended to walk through life alone, autonomously, as autonomous individuals. We are designed, we are created for relationships At the heart of that is a right relationship with God, and that relationship involves talking with God. That seems fairly obvious when you say it out loud. And uh, there are many prayers, model prayers given for us in Scripture to model what that looks like across its entire domain, from lament through to celebration, praise, thanksgiving, and all sorts of other things in between. Those prayers, as we've just seen, acknowledge and take into account the enduring and the patience and the waiting that is necessary as part of that uh, whole thing. But the Psalms also recognize that one of the things we have to pray about is our own 
is our own involvement in evil and wickedness. It's not just out there. So the Psalms remind us that the problem lies within, not just out there. And uh, you see a psalm like Psalm 51, which um, reminds us of the story of David, quite deliberately so, and gives us a model of prayer in that context. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. So these are all guides for the journey. So prayer is the third aspect. In many ways, you can sum all of what I've just said, those first three steps, you can sum it all up in this very well-known prayer by the American theologian Reinhold Niebuhr, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. That's pretty much bang on what I've just been saying, actually. It's a great summary of these first uh, three steps, the first three steps along the way. The fourth one is the path of compassion. I may not be able to defeat the evil forces currently waged, waging war against me, The very best I might be able to do is to hang on grimly in prayer and lament and do what's right anyway, walking with God on the way. But what I can certainly do is that I can offer friendship and help to those I meet along the way who are suffering. I can certainly do that. There's nothing preventing that, right? I can alleviate their suffering the best I can, even if I cannot necessarily change their total circumstances. And this kind of compassion is often attributed to God in Scripture. One of the recurring things that's said about God, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Right at the heart of God is this compassion. God who is good to all and has compassion on all that he has made. You recognize those sentiments, I'm sure. God who looks after people in dire straits, who looks after his people in the wilderness, in the New Testament, who goes after the one sheep out of the hundred, and so on. And the God who expects his people likewise to show compassion. So you can think of a passage like Exodus 22, verse 25 and following. If you lend money to one of my people among you is needy, Do not be like a moneylender, charge him no interest. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it to him by sunset, because his cloak is the only covering he has for his body. What else will he sleep in? And when he cries out to me, I will hear, says God, for I am compassionate. In other words, God being compassionate will betide us if we're not, which is a huge New Testament gospel theme, is it not, as well? It would be better if there were no needy people in the world, of course. But since there are, and since I may well not be able to do too much about the global circumstances creating the problem, at least, at least, I must treat them with compassion as it lies within my power. So that's part of the response to evil and suffering. It's not the only response. It's certainly an important part of the response It's the kind of response that Job's friends fail to give 
him. Do you remember Job's laughingly described comforters? Do you remember Job's comforters who offer no comfort at all? Uh, and Job's wife, curse God and die. That's her best shot at the whole kind of advice to Job thing. Well, it's not very compassionate. It's not what's needed. The path of compassion. And then the path of hope. Uh, this is the, the fifth stepping stone uh, in terms of this question, I think. I am to hope for relief from my own suffering. I am to hope for the victory of good over evil, to look forward to that. Beyond that, I am to dare to hope that what is bad in the world can somehow be turned to good in some remarkable cosmic currency exchange. Um, you remember the picture of that in the story of Joseph? He meets with his brothers at the end of the story. They look back on their lives, and he says to them very bluntly, you meant it's all for evil, but God meant it for good. Do you remember that? It's not that it wasn't evil, by the way. It really, really was. But nonetheless, in the midst of it, God was doing good stuff. That's what I mean about turning the bad to good in this currency exchange. So I am to dare to believe that that is the truth of the matter, that even the darkest moments in my life have meaning in some larger good plan because God is of that character and that's where the story is going. So while resisting and enduring and praying and being compassionate, I am to hope for a better world, the one described in the prophets, where a nation will not take up sword against nation nor train for war anymore, Micah, uh, in which nothing will harm or destroy on all my holy mountain, Isaiah, great pictures of where the story is in fact going. This hope is not misplaced from a biblical point of view because the story of the Bible is a story of a God who continually does provide relief from evil, does continually defeat evil, does in fact continually turn evil to good. There's plenty of reason for this hope that in the end that's how things work out. And we're going to come back to this uh, theme of hope, give it some attention uh, next weekend. All of this adds up to an activist response. Notice that. All of this represents an active response to evil and suffering. That's a very important thing to say, particularly in a context nowadays where a very common complaint among those outside the church is the complaint that Christians are too otherworldly, not very concerned about the world we live in, anxious to leave, and don't contribute very much to the common good. Very common complaint. It doesn't matter whether it's justified or not, or whether it doesn't know enough about what it's talking about. All of that's true, but nonetheless, there it is. That's the perception, right? The perception is that we're in the waiting room, waiting for the train, and while we're doing that, we're playing cards. You know, we're not doing too much to, to really make things better. You find this complaint very prominent um, 
among many of the folks who are most concerned about the environment, for example. In, in that literature, this complaint uh, by people like Derek Jensen in the States, for example, who's a rather notable, uh, uh, what would you call him? Well, he's a kind of an anarchist, really, uh, but he's a kind of uh, green anarchist, you know? So he's very robust. He doesn't like Christians at all. And he basically says, you Christians, you know, you do not believe that this is really your home. You think your home is somewhere else, and you're helping to kill the planet. He's very blunt in his critique about the Christian church. And of course, that criticism is not without merit. It's not without grounds. I could, uh, on my, in my part of the world, on the American continent, I could quickly introduce you to a whole number of people who basically do adopt the kind of view of Christian faith that Derek Jensen is criticizing. So it's not, a, it's not a straw man. But what I want to say about this is that even if it's true that some Bible readers take this view, I don't believe that Jerusalem advocates that kind of posture. Don't believe it for a minute. All of these biblical responses to evil and suffering that I've just reviewed are the responses of people who are convinced that evil and the suffering that derives from it, that both of those things are realities in the world in which we live, that this does often make the world very unpleasant and sometimes really awful, and yet these same people, these same Jerusalem people are convinced that evil and suffering are at odds with a deeper and fundamental reality. So it's not dismissing that level of reality. It's simply saying, yeah, you're right, but the deeper reality is something else. The goodness that lies in the heart of God, the goodness of the world that God has created, a world without evil and without consequent suffering beckoning us in the future, a world in which God and his creatures once again entirely share sacred space, all of that at the end of the road, and it's not interpreted biblically as a reason for staying in bed, like our bipolar bear. It is interpreted in Scripture as the very reason why we ought to go out and respond to evil and suffering in these ways. It's the framework, it's the script, if you like, in which we find our own ability to relate to the world in a godly and righteous way because we believe, we ought to believe, Jerusalem believes that evil is not inevitable. Evil in its most fundamental sense is temporary. Evil is temporary. And God's people are to live in the belief that this is the case. Now, This is, once again, a very different response to evil and suffering than we find in other notable influential worldviews. And I don't have time to say very much about all the ways in which that's true, Um, but if you're very interested in following that up, you can easily do that uh, in my book, Seriously Dangerous Religion, which 
uh, goes into a lot of this stuff in greater depth. Obviously, we're somewhat limited here by time and, and so on. Let me just take one example from the Greek tradition, since I am consciously building on Edwin Judge's talks. So let me just reinforce and elaborate upon a number of things that Edwin alluded to about how different this biblical worldview is from the Greco-Roman worldview. And then you can ask me in questions later if you want about other of the worldviews that we've been looking at. Um, so think about Plato. You remember from earlier, uh, the point of life in Plato's view is to rise via pure thought to the knowledge of reality, the world of the forms, thereby to escape embodiment and have your soul, your essential self, fly back to where it came from, right? That was the worldview, uh, the cosmology, the anthropology of Plato. According to Plato, this may take some time. In the Phaedrus, for example, uh, perhaps 10,000 years before that happens. And so in Plato's view, um, you are constantly reincarnated, and you eventually work your way up there. And if you're thinking you've seen that somewhere else before, you have. And you remember I said the Greeks were inheritors of the Eastern tradition, and this is a great example. Plato and Pythagoras both believed in reincarnation, in fact. So they're Western, but they're Eastern. So you have this notion of ongoing movement up through the chain of being, as in Hinduism and uh, so on. And it's not surprising, this goes back to my comment about packages, you will not be surprised that this has an effect on how Plato thinks we should live, how we should respond in particular to evil and suffering. Plato thought that human affairs in this world are really not worth taking very seriously. So he says this in a number of places, but certainly in his laws. If there's no God at work in the world to redeem it, as there is not in Plato's view, if there is no God with whom I may ally myself in seeking good in the world, making it a better place, as there is not in Plato, if there is no God to pray to about all that stuff, in the process of engaging with it, as there is not in Plato. Well, what do you think Plato is going to suggest we should do? Well, the answer is, of course, he's going to separate himself, he's going to ignore as much as he can, and he's going to focus on the serious business of becoming a philosopher and escaping the whole darn thing. That's what you would do if you believed what he believed. It's perfectly rational, it's not silly. Um, his belief system is wrong, and it leads him to a wrong view of what you ought to do, but it's not foolish. It's entirely rational. So in the Fido, another of Plato's works, one writer has said this about Plato in the Fido. The philosopher is described as the one who attempts to separate his soul from his body as much as he can, and in effect, what this comes to is that he concentrates all his efforts on pure reasoning and pays as little attention as possible to the perceptions, desires, and emotions which arise only because he has a body. This is said to be practicing for death. So that's what you do if you're Plato. 
you practice for death, you detach yourself from your senses, inevitably, therefore, from anything else that might disturb your quest, and that certainly includes all the suffering in the world because that could be upsetting. So you don't. And we talked the other day just a little bit briefly about compassion being a really bad thing in this context, and you can see why that might be. So you don't pay attention uh, to the world, Uh, And another philosopher writing about this same thing said this, the morality which our true philosopher uh, lays claim to is thoroughly egocentric. To this one overriding ambition, escaping the wheel of existence, everything else is subordinate, not only the demands of his own body, but also all sympathy for others, all concern for justice, And in short, practically everything that we consider important to morality. It's a pretty large indictment, actually, of Plato and the entire Greco-Roman tradition. People like Plotinus then came along, and he elaborated on this and took it further. He's the founder of Neoplatonism. very much influential on people like Augustine, for example, and indeed the whole monastic tradition within Christianity goes quite a bit to these perspectives. And once again, Plotinus is very, very direct about the need to detach yourself in a very similar way uh, to the way in which a Buddhist would talk about detaching yourself in the same way in order to press onwards with your own personal goals. And so William Inge, from quite some time ago now, writing about Plotinus, observes in him this inclination, generally in Western philosophical thought, towards the contemplative and almost monastic ideal of the philosophic life, making ethics a study rather of how to live out of society than in it. So that's going to involve a passive response, right, to evil and suffering. And I'll finish with this. William Inge goes on to say, the call to seek and save that which was lost, the settled purpose to confront the world, this call is but faintly heard by philosophers of this type, and they leave such work to others. And the people they mainly left it to in that period of history were the Christians, of course, who were the only ones who cared enough to go and look on the rubbish heaps for abandoned children and to care for plague victims in Rome when everyone else fled and all the other things that the early Christians did that were so stupid with regard to this dominant philosophical system. So this is a great example, among other things, of the foolishness of the Karen Armstrong view that all religions basically say the same thing, to which I say, fooey, which is a very intellectual term. Uh, So, I will stop there. Tony, you're going to come and uh, moderate. I think what we're doing now is we're picking out questions from the whole day, correct? Not just from that last set of observations, yeah. Yes. So, any questions? Sure. Good.